was about 18 months ago that I was contacted by Dr. Biggs about being the Barton Clinton Gordy lecturer for this year. I was absolutely amazed that I was invited to come and do the lectureship series. For 18 months, I've had in my mind what this would be like, and you have exceeded all of my expectations. What a wonderful thing it is to be back in relationship with Dr. Biggs, to, to be around him for these few days, always learning from Dr. Biggs. What a wonderful time it is to be back in touch with some of the friends that we have made when we were here, our Sunday school class and others in the church, to see some of my colleagues in ministry. Some have retired now and are active in this church. And Dr. Plowman, it's much more comfortable to preach when your DS isn't making your appointment anymore. So I'm really glad to see you here. What a joy it has been to be with these musicians. I Obviously, I will preach, but there are times when they get to th singing and I think, what more can I say? Just walk off and let that be the last word. But you paid me, so I'm going to preach. And I just want to say a word of thanks to you. I hope you know what a warm, welcoming congregation you are. And I hope that you know what an important congregation you are to the United Methodist Church. Sometimes you come and you're engaged and you're involved in the work of your church. But you forget that there are a lot of United Methodist Christians across the face of this country that look to churches like yours for leadership and mission and worship and ministry, and you are a leading congregation, and you do it very well. I just want to thank you for being you, and thank you for the opportunity to come and be your preacher. Let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was a warm day, even though it was in February, when we left our motel in Jerusalem. When we left, we had on light jackets, we headed east, we headed south, and before long we were shedding our coats because it was getting hot. Our guide told us that whenever we tell you to take a drink, take a drink, because it's easy to get dehydrated in this part of the world. Before long, we were on the cable car lift to the top of Masada. I know you know about Masada because I know Dr. Biggs has told you about Masada. It is an amazing place. It was built as a winter resort for King Herod. No expense was spared had a spa and a sauna and a swimming pool on top of the mountain. They don't believe that King Herod went there very often, if at all, but it was a crown jewel in Herod's buildings. In 70 of the Common Era, Rome attacked Jerusalem, destroyed it, took over Israel, and was in complete control of the nation with the exception of a handful of rebels who made their escape to Masada. It was the perfect place to escape to because there's no mountain adjoining it. It's easily defended. 
And apparently there was a supply of food and water that allowed them to survive in that desert. The Romans, however, were not going to let a handful of these Jews get away with such mistreatment of the Roman Empire. So they chased them to Masada. They decided to wait them out until they were hungry or thirsty and gave up. And they built an encampment at the bottom of the hill. An encampment that became so permanent that you can still see signs of it today from the top of Masada. It was there that the Romans waited and waited and waited. The days turned into weeks, the weeks turned into months, the months turned into years. In fact, it was said that the Jews would wave to the spies on the mountains over in the distance and then dive into their swimming pool, which made the Romans angry because they had to carry water seven miles from Engedi just to have something to drink. But the Romans were not going to give in. They realized that the only way to defeat those in Masada was to build a ramp up the side of the mountain. They began to build it at much cost of life, but it began to go up and up and up. And soon it became apparent that the Romans would enter Masada. Now we're not sure exactly what happened, but we believe that the men gathered in the synagogue, one of the oldest synagogues we've ever found, and held a meeting. And even though Jewish theology prohibited suicide, they decided they would rather die at their own hands than to be killed by the Romans. Lots were drawn. Men killed the women, the children, and the other men. And lots were drawn again, and one man killed all the rest and fell on his own sword. Apparently a couple of the women and children were hidden. That's how the story got out. And then the Romans reached the top, and they breached the city, came inside, and it was quiet, deathly quiet. They noticed the blood running in the streets, realized what had happened, and after all those years, just turned around and walked back down the ramp. Now, there is a legend, and I do not know if it's true or not, but it makes a wonderful story. There is a legend that When archaeologists were looking through that synagogue, one of the oldest ones, as I said, they found several pieces of Scripture. Among them, what I'm going to read to you in just a moment. Now, we don't know if or when it was read. But it's not a hard stretch of the imagination to imagine yourself as one of those men in that synagogue on that night, knowing that you have reached the end of the line knowing that there is no more possibility for escape, and knowing your Hebrew scriptures, have someone stand and read these words. Listen now for the word of the Lord from the prophet Ezekiel. 
The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded, and as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet a vast multitude. Then he said to me, Mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves. O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you on your own soil. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. After the reign of Josiah, the people of Judah went back to their wicked ways. They began to worship in what the Bible calls the high places. And while worshiping there, they did not worship Yahweh alone, but other pagan gods and other idols. And Ezekiel says to them, if you persist on doing this, you will suffer. There will be pain and sorrow in your life. And Ezekiel was right. 587, the people were carted off into exile in Babylon. And there they were cut off from everything that gave their life meaning and purpose from their land, from their home, from their families, from their communities, from their temple. It was there in their darkest moments, in their deepest despair, that Ezekiel has another vision. This vision, a vision of hope. Flannery O'Connor, in one of her short stories entitled The Misfit, tells the story of an evil man and his sons. They kidnap a family, a father, mother, son, daughter, a little baby, and the grandmother. One by one, the sons take the family out into the woods to kill them. The father, the son, the daughter, the mother, the baby, until only the grandmother is left. The grandmother is arguing for her life. 
She says to the misfit, I know that deep inside you're a good man. He says, no, ma'am, I am not a good man. She says, if you just call on Jesus, he will help you. He said, I'm doing okay by myself, ma'am. I don't need any help. And she kept trying to dissuade him from killing her. But deep in her heart, she knew that she was doomed. And she knew that she was doomed because of something that the misfit said very early on in the story. He said, you see, he said, I believe in a world where the lame don't walk and the blind don't see and what's dead stays dead. How do you view the world? It's a world for the misfit of utter and complete hopelessness. The world where the lame are going to stay lame. And the blind are going to stay blind. And there is no possibility for open graves. Because death has the last word. When you look at the world, do you see circumstances that lead you to believe that there is no hope? Richard Lupton, in his book, Theirs is the Kingdom, talks about moving his family to the inner city, and there they engage in ministry with the poorest of the poor. They have a neighbor. Her name is Mrs. Bailey. Mrs. Bailey has lived in this neighborhood for a long time. As it became more and more dangerous, her friends invited her to move, encouraged her to move, and she just put bars in the windows and more locks on her door. Mrs. Bailey now wheeled around in a wheelchair. She wasn't able to trim her toenails or wash her hair or even purchase her own food, and this family began to take care of her. They said there was a time when the breezes blew through the house, when there was laughter of children and love in the family, but after Mr. Bailey died, Mrs. Bailey just spent her time attending to her business. And her business was wrapping rubber bands around old check stubs and junk mail, even used underwear, and just stacked them on her kitchen table until it got full, and the coffee table till it got full, and the end table till it got full. And every day she would wheel around and check her stacks of garbage. Then one day she died. The Lupton said that we met her death with a mixture of sadness and relief. And then he wrote these words. Mrs. Bailey hoarded every possession but life itself. And now that was gone. But her death actually occurred years before her heart stopped beating. Her death was signaled when she first began to clutch at life. If you would save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose my life for my sake, you will find it. Do you know anyone for whom the circumstances of life are so bleak, so desperate, so dark, that they no longer live? We, we all know people who stopped living a long time before they died. Because when they looked around, they saw a world where the lame would never walk and the blind would never see. And what's dead always stays that way. How do you see the world? There are those 
who when they look at the world see possibility and promise and hope. The first sermon I mentioned to you, a fellow by the name of Father Bob. Father Bob is a Polish priest at the monastery in Broken Arrow. He loved to tell stories, and he told another story. He told me a story that for him was a story to answered prayer. And it is a story of answered prayer. But when I tell you the story, I want you to see if you hear something else. He said he was in the concentration camp. His job was to rake the yard, but he was very hungry and very weak. They were not given enough to eat. A number of men had already died from hunger. Those who were very weak continued to get up and work because they could not be labeled as as disposable. So he was out raking one day, praying that God would provide food for him. He said every once in a while, a German car or motorcycle or truck would drive by, and he'd have to snap to attention and snatch his hat off of his head and stand in attention. He said he was praying for food when... He heard a truck. He snapped to attention. He looked up. It was a bread truck. And as it turned the corner, a loaf of bread fell off of the truck. Now, what would you do if you found a loaf of bread falling off a German truck? Father Bob said, I knew that somebody would go hungry if they didn't have that bread. So I picked it up and chased the truck. But soon it went into a section of the concentration camp where only Germans were held. The gate was closed. I couldn't get in. I didn't know what to do. What did you do? Well, he hid the bread in a bush, snuck it in the barracks at night under his jacket, and gave almost all of it away to his friends because they were hungry. Now, that is a story of answered prayer, to be sure. But it's also the story of a man through whom the Spirit blows and the wind of hope and promise and possibility is seen. This was not a man who, when he looked at the world, thought that the lame will never walk and the blind will never see and what's dead is going to stay that way. Here was a man who looked at the world and saw the hand of God at work. How do you look at the world? I read recently of a woman who was going through a bitter divorce. She took her children out west to Colorado. She left the children at her parents' house. She took a hike up into the mountains, and she contemplated suicide. As she sat there on the edge of the mountain, she looked around, and she saw a rock. And the rock had a crack in it, And growing out of the crack was a tree. And she said, it dawned on me that if God can grow a tree from a rock, imagine what God can do with my life. And she walked down the mountain with hope in her heart. How do you view the world? Can you catch a glimpse of the vision that Ezekiel had of a world where the lame one day will walk and the blind will see and that what's dead won't stay that way because God is in the business of opening graves and restoring hope and bringing life even in the deepest, darkest circumstances of our existence? Or do we just clutch and cling, living without hope?
church. Hear what Ezekiel has to say. There is no death that God cannot resurrect. There is no darkness that God cannot bring into the light. The lame will walk and the blind will see and what's dead won't stay that way. And if you catch that vision, if you believe that in your heart, then you realize that it's not yours to keep. You and I as the church are called to be living reminders of hope in a hurting world. When I moved to Lake Street Church in Eau Claire, it had a lovely red brick building. It had a couple of towers, one a little bit taller than the other. A beautiful facility, except on the tallest tower, there was a white metal cross with a red neon light around the outside of it. That was the tackiest gosh-awful cross I'd ever seen. I prayed God would knock it down. In fact, one day, half the cross stopped working. I didn't tell anybody, but somebody from the trustees saw it and went up and fixed it. I hated that cross. Until I got a letter one day. About a block and a half from our church was the city-county jail. Got a letter from a man. He didn't say why he was there. He just told us that he had reached the end of his rope. No hope for tomorrow. No promise, no possibility, nothing to live for. And then he looked out the little slit of his jail room and saw our red neon cross. He said, it reminded me of Sunday school when I was a child. Singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. Being told that God would never forsake me or leave me. And being reminded that in God there's always hope. Thank you for that red cross, he said. And it's still there. Some of you read Anne Lamott. She goes to a primarily African-American Presbyterian church in San Francisco. Has a beautiful, large, wonderful, wonderful pastor by the name of Veronica. And one day Veronica told a story. She told about a good friend of hers who, as a child, got lost in the city. Was wandering around, and the more she wandered, the more confused and disoriented she became. She didn't really have any idea where she was. She got panicky. She stopped the police officer. She said, I don't know where I am. I can't find my way home. She didn't even know her address. So they got in the car, and they drove up and down the street, hoping to spot her house. And then she said, stop. Stop. I know where I am. He said, oh, are we by your house? She said, no, sir, but there's my church. When I see my church, I know the way home. You and I are called to be living reminders of God's hope in a hurting, dark world. When the world looks at us, they should catch glimpses of a reign of God where the lame walk, the blind see, and what's dead won't stay that way. A world 
where graves are opened up and life is restored. Since I left Boston Avenue Church, I developed a habit of standing out front on Sunday morning shaking hands with those who come into the church. Every other church I served had a front door. This church has four front doors, so it's a little hard to figure out which one is the front door. But I would stand out by the front door. I would usually stand there because I knew that if a visitor was coming cold to my church, they wouldn't go in the side door where a lot of my people came. They would go in what looked like the front door because they knew that would go to the sanctuary. So I would stand there and shake hands and greet people. And, and Except in Wisconsin in the winter, I did it almost every single Sunday. I do it now in Colorado Springs, busy Nevada Avenue. People stop me from time to time and say, what are you doing standing outside shaking hands? I say, I'm trying to get the Presbyterians to stop, but they're a tough bunch. They just drive right by every day. Every once in a while, I'll make eye contact with somebody in the car, and I will wave. But mostly, I just shake hands with people walking into the building. Several months ago, I saw this younger woman driving by in a white car, and the front looked like it had been in an accident. It was crumpled up pretty badly. She looked at me, I waved. She gave no response and drove away. But apparently, she drove around the block because she came back around and parked right in front of the church where our buses are supposed to be to let the people out in wheelchairs. So I was a little miffed when this lady parked in front of the church. She got out of the car and started walking towards me. I'm standing there in my robe. And she walked up to me and she said, Would you pray for me? I was a little surprised. I said, Sure. What do you want me to pray for? She said, I just want you to pray for me. So I held her hands, and there on the sidewalk, people walking by, I prayed that she might know God's love and find God's peace and receive God's healing in the broken places in her life. And above all, know that in God there is always hope, no matter what the circumstances. She looked up and tears were just running down her face. She thanked me. She got in her car and she drove away. Church, there's a lot of hurting people in the world. Circumstances have been crushed down. We need to be a people who show them that the lame can walk blind will see, and what's dead surely will be brought to life. Church, don't ever lose your hope. Thanks be to God. Amen.